Welcome to the Nonprofit Hero Factory, a weekly live video broadcast and podcast where we'll be helping nonprofit leaders and innovators create more heroes for their cause and a better world for all of us. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 10 of the Nonprofit Hero Factory. I'm really excited to be back with you today. We missed last week for all kinds of reasons, but um, we've got an amazing show for you today. It's a little bit different than uh, most of the other guests that we've had. Our guest today is Jonasen Goldson, who is a community rabbi, a TEDx presenter, the author of five books, including Fix Your Broken Windows, a 12-step system for promoting ethical affluence. He has extensive experience teaching business leaders how good ethics is good business and the benefits of intellectual diversity, applying ancient rabbinic wisdom to the challenges of the modern world. When I first came across uh, Jonas and he was introduced to me by a friend, a mutual friend of ours, I watched his TEDx talk and I immediately saw the, the value that he's bringing to conversations that are particularly relevant today, but really are important at all times and couldn't wait to get him on the show to talk about ethics, labels, and diversity in organizations. So uh, when I asked him what his nonprofit superpower is, he had to pick a, one of many, and he selected taking complex ideas and making them simple. I'm interested in getting as much value out of him today as we can. So without any further ado, let's bring Jonasen onto the show. Good morning. Good morning, Jonasen. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. It was a pleasure. We've, we've known each other for about 48 hours. Always, already feels like we're good friends. I, I see the beginnings of a, of a great friendship. Or What is the line? Uh, the beginning of a beautiful friendship. There it is. There it is. I didn't do my bogey impression for the benefit of the audience. <laughs> uh, for the benefit. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> so, Jonasen, um, as you know, I focus a lot on storytelling, and I know you tell great stories, as you did in your uh, TEDx talk. Um, so tell us a little bit, what is your story? How did you get into ethics and labels and diversity and all the great things that you talk about today? Well, a lot of uh, our best stories come out of profound foolishness. And um, when I graduated college from the University of California with a degree in English, I had to decide what to do with that degree. And so I went hitchhiking cross country. Uh, I then went backpacking across Europe. I ended up in Israel. And that's where I reconnected with my roots. I've been raised with no knowledge of of uh, Judaism whatsoever, and I discovered this tremendous, um, beautiful community of deep thought and profound ideas, and um, changed my whole way of life. I embarked on a course I never would have imagined. I stayed in Israel for nine years, met my wife there, had our first two children there, became an Orthodox rabbi, and then I embarked on a career teaching high school to uh, Jewish high school students to try and instill in them an appreciation for the wisdom of their tradition and the beauty of their culture. And uh, four years ago, my uh, school closed, um, victim of uh, local politics. Uh, we were too far to the middle, as I like to say. And uh, we can talk about uh, that because that's my experience with nonprofits. Uh, and that's when I started my business as a keynote speaker and uh, consultant, coach, and trainer. And I try to distill all the wisdom of 3,000 years of Jewish teachings into a single soundbite. And I came up with ethical leadership and intellectual diversity. And that has really uh, become my passion. It's always been my passion. I've just focused it more on how I can help organizations, businesses, nonprofits, and individuals uh, 
realizing the benefits of creating an ethical mindset and contributing to a culture of ethics, which is really what drives success and prosperity and productivity. Uh, I have so many tangential uh, points that I would love to explore based off of that. Uh, well, not purely tangential, but direct as well. But um, I didn't realize it. And I listened to your tech talk a couple of times now, but your journey of self-exploration coming from not being connected to your own roots and to your own history and heritage. I went on a very similar journey uh, much later in my life, but having been born in the Soviet Union, I was very disconnected from Judaism and from my history. And when I was in uh, living in Los Angeles already, I was looking for a subject matter and I was exploring my own history. My grandmother had been um, at that time in her mid to late 80s and I saw that she was the connection to my history. She was the last of that generation, especially on my father's side. And I started interviewing her and that led me down a massive journey of exploration, without which I, I wouldn't be who I am today, uh, not a rabbi, but a storyteller and someone who is fascinated by the human condition and what creates who we are, right? Our, our history affects us whether we are aware of it or not. Well, that's really what your whole focus is here with the power of story. There's a study I read a while back, wrote an article about it, that people who read literary fiction demonstrate a greater sensitivity to ethics and morals than people who read nonfiction. Wow. Because literary fiction is profound ideas couched in a story. I mean, the truth is you can do it with nonfiction too. Good nonfiction. Capture the story. Yeah. Because stories are what we remember, and they're what resonate. If you remember the story, it's powerful and it affects you. And the message of that story will become more implanted in you. Mm -hmm. That's what we want to do yeah. uh, to communicate our ideas and our passions. Well, those great nonfiction, uh, those great fiction books and some of the nonfiction ones, what they do is they help you identify with that character who's perhaps in a similar situation to you or perhaps completely different, empathize with them. And that is really what opens up your mind to really seeing other people in the first place. Yeah, and, and empathy is the E in ethics. It all starts with that perfect transition. Yeah, you know, that ability to to uh, connect with people on on an emotional level. Um, those relationships ultimately are, are what drive everything. So, let's uh, take a half step back from ethics first. And now I want to start with labels because you start your TEDx talk with labels. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, labels, how they work, how you've seen them in your own life and in organizations? Well, labels are inevitable. Um, we often call them stereotypes, which is how I start off my, uh, my keynote on diversity. Um, it's a convenient psychological reflex because you think about how many people we come in contact with in our lives. And, and it takes a lot of time and effort to really get to know people. And so our mind's looking for shortcuts. Mm -hmm. And right, if I look at you and I, and I can make snap judgments based on your dress, your personal appearance, the way you speak, um, whatever cues and clues I can latch onto right away, so that simplifies the process of understanding where you are and how I have to start relating to you. And that's fine. As long as we don't stop there. Right, 
Right. It was evolutionary, evolutionarily, if I could get that word out, uh, necessary, right? It's heuristics. That's, that's what the behavioral psychologists call it, right? Where we have to be able to quickly identify things and our brains are great at it because it helped us survive. It helped us uh, be able to avoid large bears that might kill us or, or whatever other animals. It, we don't need to get to know every little thing about something or a creature or a person in order to start forming some sort of danger or, or um, friend, you know, friend or foe, fight or flight uh, responses. But at this point in our societal evolution, that's become oftentimes a negative, right? Yeah, and you know, Susan Keen talks about this beautifully in her TED talk, when she talks about the power of introverts, that in, you go back a, a few centuries uh, and people lived in little rural areas and a lot of people would never come in contact with more than 30, 40, 50 people in their lives. And so you really got to know the people around you. And you could, you could evaluate, you could choose your leaders based on a knowledge of the substance of their character. But after the, after the um, Industrial Revolution and people moving into large urban areas and coming in contact with so many people, we had to start relying more on snap judgments. And so people with charisma, and who are gregarious and outgoing. Those are the people that make an immediate positive impression, even though there's absolutely no correlation between extroversion and competence. Um, it's, it's, it's the default. Mm -hmm. So then what we have to do, if we want to be, if we want to have intellectual integrity, we have to look beneath those labels. We have to know when to set the labels aside and actually get to know people for who they are and also recognize that even if people don't share our labels, we still may have quite a bit in common with them. And we have a lot to learn from them because the differences are what make us stronger. Partnerships are built on differences. You don't want to go to partnership with somebody who has all your skills and all your shortcomings because what's the point? But when we complement each other, we can learn from each other, we can pool our resources. That what, that's what builds success. So what happens, how do we, is there any tricks or any suggestions you have to uh, how we identify that we're even using labels in the first place, right? Because it's so natural, so ingrained. How do we first even realize that we have a problem, if you will? And then what might we do to get past that? Because I see this in, in well, certainly in politics, we're in a, another big election cycle right now. And boy, our labels being, <laughs> flung left and right, literally, uh, but also in, in organizations, you know, as I was watching your, your uh, talk and reading your books, I was thinking about how even I teach to identify a villain when it comes to nonprofits, because we all gather around a common enemy. But that can become dangerous if we inadvertently label someone as a villain or say that they are the other, right? So what, what do you Coach, what do you teach people to, to change their way of thinking around that? Well, this is a big topic today with the whole idea of unconscious bias. And the first step is to make it conscious. It's, it's, it's okay if I have a natural bias as long as I recognize it as that and I don't allow it to take control. Uh, one of the best ways to do it is to seek out people who think differently from us. I was on a podcast this week with a, uh, with a black Muslim woman 
And we both commented that we just loved the optics of the, of the screen with the Orthodox rabbi on one side, white Orthodox male rabbi on one side, <laughs> and the black Muslim uh, woman on the other. And we were able to have a, a very uh, thoughtful conversation. We disagreed on a few points. We did it respectfully and civilly. And we came away understanding each other better. And, and as an added benefit, um, it's been suggested that talking to people who, with whom you disagree um, can actually help slow down or stave off the advance of dementia and, and Alzheimer's because we're using our brains mm -hmm. in ways that are a little uncomfortable and a little challenging. It, it's that descent into, into groupthink, um, into affirmations where we simply say the same things over and over again and we nod and we agree and, and uh, we don't learn anything but what's worse is we become more and more confident that everybody thinks like us you know the, you know the joke from the yeah. Nixon administration I don't know anybody who voted for Richard Nixon I'll just plug in any candidate you want yeah. <laughs> we, we don't we don't allow ourselves to see that there is another side and to understand where other people are coming from and to be able to accommodate the uncomfortable reality that we don't all agree, we won't all agree, but we can still respect each other. Yeah. So this is, uh, when it comes to nonprofits specifically, but with everybody right now, this is the double-edged sword of social media, right? On the one hand, we can be exposed to more people who disagree with us. On the other hand, we wind up entrenching into our own little camps and, and and getting that echo chamber effect. How do we get past that? How does an organization, for example, or an individual within an organization get past that tunnel effect, that, uh, that echo chamber, and actually engage with someone else around these topics that are, that are obviously divisive? There's this great story, and I think I just read it in, in, in Good to Great by Jim Collins, and um, it's talked about quite a bit. I think it was Pixar, that when they were designing their, their, their building or their campus, they, they, put the, they put the restrooms in the center of the atrium so that people from all the different departments had to go to the same place and would bump into each other. And they discovered that that generated a tremendous amount of creativity. Because if you're just talking to the people who are doing what you're doing, you're gonna get locked into certain preconceptions, into certain modes of thinking. When you start talking to people outside your field, then all of a sudden, you know, there's a mastermind group that was created between plumbers and, um, I'm blanking on the name, the, the, the surgeons who, um, vascular surgeons. Right? <laughs> what in the world would they have in common? Well, think about it, right? The flow of blood, the flow of water, sure. pressure, transference. I mean, each discipline discovered something from the other. Whoever would have thought to put these two groups together? You know, it's, it, it gets so exciting when, when, you, when you start talking to people and say, wow, I'm discovering new things. Mm -hmm. I'm learning more about myself talking to somebody else. And I'm learning about somebody else. And in the process, I create connections. I create teamwork. Uh, I create community. 
community, I think, is is really at the heart of what we all we're all looking for. And now that we're cut off from each other physically, all these online communities. But in terms of creating passion, creating allies, uh, and and creating success, a sense of community is incredibly powerful. Yeah, you uh, you have a quote in uh, one of your books. This is "Iron sharpens iron, and one person sharpens the mind of another." From King Solomon, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and and think about the the imagery there of of two swords rubbing against two blades rubbing against each other, and, and if they're really going, the sparks are flying, uh, and they come away with with these keen, sharp edges. Uh, the story I tell in my in my TED talk is the two great. Uh, Jewish academies 2,000 years ago that history says that when they argued in the study hall, they were so passionate, it was as if they fought with swords and spears. But when they left the study hall, they were fast friends. Never was personal. It was all about the desire to get to the truth, to understand more deeply. And in the process, they forged this tremendous alliance between one another, and their, their debates and discussions are still studied today and have a direct impact on Jewish law and Jewish life. So you talk a lot about ancient wisdom and, and how you apply it today. Um, I, I gather m much of your ancient wisdom does come from the uh, rabbinical teachings of thousands of years now, as, as you've said. Uh, but recently you, you, you and I were just talking and you were talking about Abraham Lincoln as well and how he uh, applied, well, how some of his uh, methodologies could now be applied to current situations. Do you want to speak a little bit to that? Yeah, in their Pulitzer Prize winning book, uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, the book's Team of Rivals. And, and it's such an incredibly powerful and inspirational and relevant story that when, when Lincoln, uh, and he was a dark horse, nobody expected him to win the nomination uh, mm -hmm. to become the Republican nominee in, in 1860. And he, um, the first thing he did was he invited his Republican political adversaries into his cabinet. And his close friends and advisors warned him, don't do it. He says, they're not on board with your mission. They are resent that you got the nomination, they didn't. And they are not in line with your political philosophy. And you're just going to create chaos and mayhem. He did it anyway. Mm -hmm. And by doing it and by giving them a voice and by, he, he was a person of extraordinary patience. You know, the people there were even within his own party, the, the hardcore abolitionists wanted slavery eradicated at that moment. And, and he, he believed slavery was wrong. The, the people on the left wanted a more balanced approach. Let's, let's appease the, 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 the Democrats who were the, the, the party of the South and slavery. And, and King Lincoln had to manage all these different factions. And they're, they're calling him names. And this, guy, this side's telling, saying he, he can't make up his mind. And this side's saying he won't, he, uh, he's, he's too much radical. And, and he had this profound patience and ability to just wait and watch and listen and learn and, and hold off until the opportune moment arose when he could enact the policies he wanted to. Um, I mean, the subtitle of the book is The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln. And uh, you know, in, in an age of sound bites and 
name calling and tweeting and slogans and character assassination <laughs> and gridlock and, and I mean just toxic partisanship it is such a powerful story and the lessons are relevant for business as well. You know, uh, what leader should want a bunch of yes men? Yeah. Um, yeah, it makes me feel good. My own ego is assuaged. But if I'm a good leader, I want people to tell me when I'm wrong. I want people to tell me what I don't know. I want people to challenge me to think more deeply and in new ways because that's how we get to a real sense of purpose and direction. Absolutely. And I know that a lot of organizations, including many of the nonprofits that I've been in contact with, are currently rethinking, reevaluating, discussing, which is wonderful in and of itself, but it's even become a point of conversation, their own diversity, their own uh, inclusivity practices, and what they can do to increase the number of voices within their own organizations and then within the world from different uh, points of view. And so I was thinking in, um, I, I'm gonna quote you back to yourself. You said, in the end, it all comes down to this code, uh, capital C, capital D, capital E of values, communication, diversity, and ethics. How does that break down? And we've talked a bit about diversity and ethics, but specifically, how does it apply to communication? Well, let, let's let's take it um, first briefly from the point of uh, start with ethics and diversity, because ethics means I have a vision of a world, a community greater than myself. I recognize it's not all about me. It's about the world I live in. It's about the community I'm part of. And by contributing to a better community, I get to live in a better community, which makes me a better person. By being a better person, I create a better community. Uh, diversity is part of that because uh, what we're just talking about. I only I only know what's true and what's right and what's good if I can see all the angles. Right? Until you look at something, and there are all kinds of optical illusions and, and optical uh, games that, that make this point that when you change the perspective, you suddenly see things you didn't even realize were there before. And you make assumptions based upon a narrow point of view. So what I call intellectual diversity, which by extension goes to cultural diversity, but without the tribalism that can often result from that, if we retreat into our tribes, then we're simply reinforcing the problem. If we build bridges and we learn to um, understand one another better, then we are using our differences as a source of strength, and that's where communication comes in. I have to be able to communicate my ideas so that you'll understand them, even if you are not already on board, even if you don't naturally agree with me. That means first I have to understand myself. I have to be secure enough and aware enough of my own ideas that I can communicate them to you so that you can understand them. Then I have to listen to you, and I have to be able to communicate back to you your ideas so that you know that you've been heard. So if I've made myself clear to you and you know that I that you've made yourself clear to me and I understand you, now we can start to work together from a position of respect and collaboration. There's a whole lot to, <laughs> to unpack there, um, but that's a great uh, overview of, of the philosophies that I think we all need to kind of consider and incorporate. What happens, and um, you do break this down, what happens when you have ethics 
but without communication. Well, think about um, someone who presents himself as a model of ethics, a model of morality, but he doesn't communicate the universality of his philosophy to others. Then you have the, you know, the sage on the mountaintop who, okay, I, I don't really want to climb a mountain to find this guy. Uh, I don't really understand where he's coming from. Okay, he's a saint, but I'm not a saint. What's it got to do with me? You know, we, we have a problem in, in, the, uh, in the Jewish religious community um, that we, we love to admire the sages of previous generations, and we have lots and lots of biographies about them. But a common complaint is that these biographies, because there's an unwillingness to get into the nitty-gritty of the struggles that people had to become saints and sages. And so there's a certain inaccessibility. Okay, oh, at three years old, he, had, he, had, he was saying... You know, the prayers by heart, and at five years old, he had mastered all of the rabbinic literature. And okay, that's great. You know, what about me? I'm just an ordinary person. The communication comes from finding that essential message and learning how difficult it is for a saint to become a saint and recognizing people are not born to sainthood, people are not born naturally good or naturally bad, we're born as blank slates. And some of us have more advantages than others. If I have a uh, depending on family and community and neighborhood and, all, and country and all these variables, but it's what we do with our circumstances. And therefore, when, the, when you have a model of ethics who can communicate the universality of ethical values that can inspire people who are ordinary to strive to become extraordinary, that's when we're really onto something. That's uh, absolutely on point. When we look at the stories that nonprofits are telling, uh, both internally and externally, having their ethics out in front is usually what actually connects people to the organization in the first place. We build empathy through the stories that we tell, but if the organization is trying to create a better world, then they need to be communicating that, modeling that with their own ethics, with their and and having that out in front, right, in everything that they communicate. And I think actually, you know, I talked earlier about how helping define a common villain. In this case, it's the villain becomes the lack of ethics, the lack of inclusivity, and more and more people will rally around the cause to improve the world with this level of ethics inside it. Yeah, absolutely. The, 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 the function of ethics is trust. You know, if, if empathy is the E in ethics, trustworthiness is a T in ethics. Um, and and it's, a natural, it's a natural progression. You trust someone that you believe has integrity. You trust someone that you believe has your best interest in heart and everyone's be best interest in heart. Um, there's, there's a story that I heard uh, a little bit before my time of political awareness, but when, when Ronald Reagan was governor of California, and he was a very big, uh, you know, 
economic conservative, uh, all in favor of lower taxes. And when the subject of raising taxes arose, he said, uh, my feet are in concrete. Well, the economy, the economy didn't go the way he hoped it would, and he had to reverse position. And so he began his speech saying, the sound you hear is the concrete breaking between my, beneath my feet. And because he had the credibility with his own people, they knew that he wasn't being wishy-washy. He wasn't waffling. He was dealing with a, with, a, with a reality that he had to deal with. But if you fast forward to remember when George Bush, the first, was, was president, and his campaign slogan was, read my lips, no new taxes. And then he had to, in, he had to, to raise taxes. He lost his own base because he didn't have that credibility. He hadn't achieved that trust. And so people thought, okay, he's not one of us. We can't rely on him. We can't believe what he says. There's no trust. So a credit, an ethical leader is somebody who communicates his values to the point where if he does have to make mid-course corrections, his own people can recognize, okay, this isn't flakiness. This isn't being disingenuous. This is reading the reality of the circumstance and the time and the place, and, and eventually we'll try to get back on track. But it's that trust that makes it work. This is awesome stuff, Jonas, and I'm sure we could be talking for another few hours, and I'd love to keep, keep this conversation going uh, between you and I regardless, and maybe even have you back on the show at some, some point to talk more about it. Um, but we do try to be respectful of your time and, and our viewers and listeners. So. Um, in the in, in the mindset of, of trying to wrap it up anyway, uh, can you tell me, are there any tools or resources or books that you recommend our listeners uh, check out? We're, of course, going to link to everything in our show notes, including your TED Talk and some of your books and things that you uh, have put out there into the world, which I do recommend. But what else should organizations be looking at and thinking about and doing? Well, I already mentioned a couple of them. Team uh, of Rivals, uh, I think it's is. Uh, a book everybody should read to understand politics, business, and all human relations. Um, Good to Great, which is a business classic by Jim Collins, which I finally got around to reading. Uh, he also knows what makes a, what he calls a level five leader is, his formula is get all the right people on the bus and make sure they're all in the right seats and then basically leave them alone. And, and, that, and so that comes into back this idea of community that we're talking about. And, I think one of the most valuable tools we have today is the Facebook uh, groups. Uh, it's a real opportunity to generate a feeling of community because when you have community, you have allies, you have advocates, you have salespeople, um, and you can generate that excitement and that passion that nonprofits really need because the profit is the mission. Yeah. And if, if, uh, if the mission is not being communicated, then it's going to be a lot harder to, to keep a, a viable enterprise. Fantastic, yeah, Facebook groups are a huge, powerful tool, especially, as you said earlier, now that we are not as able to meet in person, not as able to uh, communicate in the ways that we used to, any platform where you can create a group setting where people can ask questions, discuss, and hopefully have some input from your organization, although not necessarily steering everything, but giving a forum and giving a platform where people can connect and who knows, come up with some great ideas or find new ways to support you. 
is incredibly powerful these days. And I do think a lot of nonprofits should be taking advantage of that if they haven't yet, although many already do. So what should people do when they're done listening to this show or watching this show? How can they follow up with you and learn more about the work that you're doing, maybe even get you to come and do a keynote for them? Yeah, well, you know, the keynotes are a little complicated right now, but uh, I'm always looking for opportunities to connect with people. Uh, there are other, other options in, in uh, coaching and online, online uh, teaching. So the best place to start is my, my website, which is my name, jonasongoldson.com. A little hard to spell, but uh, not too hard to find. And, and also I'm very active on LinkedIn, a little less so on the other social media. But uh, you know, always encourage people to reach out. Uh, always happy to have a conversation. And they could request your book, your your ebook, when absolutely, which has some great quotes and great ideas, many of which I referenced in this conversation today. Jonasson, thank you so so much for your time and for helping distill all the wisdom of the ages for us and all the nonprofit listeners out there, nonprofit professionals that are looking to make a bigger difference in the world. I know they're going to get a lot out of this episode. So thank you again, and I look forward to continuing the conversation soon. I appreciate it, Boris. Until next time. Bye-bye. Thank you all for watching and listening to the Nonprofit Hero Factory. We hope this episode has given you some ideas and strategies for creating more heroes for your cause and a better world for all of us. Please be sure to subscribe to this show on YouTube, Facebook, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And let us know what you think by leaving a review.